0: Hello and welcome to the summer edition of Lost in Science, where we will be hearing from several speakers from The Labora Story, which is a science-themed monthly event based in Melbourne, where science enthusiasts get up in front of an audience and tell us about their science heroes. On the show this week, we have our very own Chris Lassig from Lost in Science talking about the time traveling Dr. Ronald Mallet. And also, I, Stu Burns, will be talking about a science villain called Fritz Haber from the Laboratory Halloween edition uh, of Science Villains. So stay tuned to hear from us. <music>
1: It is, it is great to be here. I do love speaking at the laboratory. It is. It is wonderful to be amongst your own kind, you know. So, look, can I get an indication? How many, how many scientists do we have here tonight? How many? Or, you know, anybody who want to be a scientist, who consider themselves a scientist anyway? That's, that's a pretty good sample. Okay. Yeah. We've got a, got a stacked room here. Okay. So, if you're a scientist, um, I have another question for you. Um... How many of you scientists would love to be able to travel back in time? Yeah, sort of thought. It's, it's a pretty popular kind of thing. Okay, alright, no, we haven't finished yet. So if you're a scientist and you'd love to be able to travel back in time, keep your hand up if you're actually doing something about it, you're actually trying to build a time machine. Okay, yeah, see. There's pretty much, as far as I know, there is only one physicist in the world who is actually seriously trying to build a time machine. He has a theory. He's doing the experiments. Uh, his name is Ronald Mallett. He's a professor of physics at the University of Connecticut. And he's doing this because he's on a personal mission to change the past. Okay, so Ronald Lawrence Mallett. He was born in 1945. He grew up in the Bronx in New York. And his father, Boyd Mallet was a TV repairman. And this is obviously a time when television is still fairly new. But Boyd, he was a very clever man. He was very, um, he was very keen on improving himself and his family through knowledge and education. He encouraged his children, well, he, he forced his children to, to listen to classical music and to read poetry. And he would, he would take young Ronald, little Ronald, aside, and he would take, take the television apart and he would show him how it all worked and encourage his, his interest in technical things. Uh, so this was all fine. But then, then one night in 1955, uh, after a party they had at their house, and the, the parties at the metal house, they were always a big sensation, partly because Boyd had wired up the whole place with speakers, including, supposedly, um, something, a mechanism that played music when you lifted the toilet seat. <laughs> I don't know. To me, it sounds fairly annoying, but it was pretty impressive for 1955. Um, yeah, so after this party that night... Uh, Boyd Mallet had a heart attack and he died, aged just 33. And you can imagine what it would have been like then for young Ronald Mallet, um, only 10 years old, watching the, the ambulance arrive, um, seeing them try to revive his father and then take him away, and then realizing, you know, gradually realising the, the impact and things would never be the same again. And it's no wonder that this, this young boy decided that he would have to go back and prevent this tragedy from ever happening. It's not something he decided straight away, though. Uh, there was a few distractions. His um, without their father, the family had no money, and so his mother Dorothy moved them all back to rural Pennsylvania to live with his his um, live with her family. Uh, and there, as well as being you know poor, uh, Ronald encountered racism for the first time, because the Mullet family were African American, and although this was you know this was fine in the Bronx, in um, in Pennsylvania it was a different matter. And so he was, you know, at school, he was the poor black kid. He was also, let's be honest, he was a nerdy kid. And so school wasn't a lot of fun for him. And his father's kind of ideals of education got put to the side a bit. And so Ronald, he, he did what nerdy kids have always done, I guess, and he retreated into science fiction. Um, I just want to say, um, in honour of science fiction, obviously today is the 4th of May, so, you know... May the 4th be with you, everybody. Um, what? What? There are no Star Wars hand signals, OK? There's... It's fine. Um, that's probably some sort of robot. Um, so, yeah, so Ronald, he read a lot of science fiction. And one day in the Salvation Army sh- shop, he found an illustrated comic book version of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. And this is when he decided this that what he had to do was build a time machine so he could, he could go back and warn his father and stop this all from ever happening. So he decided that what he would do, he would build the time machine that was on the cover of the book. He, uh, he gathered a whole lot of pieces of junk and using the skills that his father had taught him, he assembled the time machine as he saw it. He pulled the lever. I mean, of course nothing happened. It was a, it was a, he was a kid and it was a picture from a comic book. And that's when he decided that he had to become a physicist. It's a worthy decision. <laughs> um, so he rededicated himself to his schoolwork. Um, dedication is necessary, but not sufficient, uh, especially when you're a poor kid in in Pennsylvania. But fortunately, America had the GI Bill, which meant that if you enlisted in the military, then the government would pay for you to pay for your education. So he did. He signed up. Uh, It was the Vietnam War at the time, but he was lucky. He got stationed to uh, an Air Force base in Ohio, so he managed to survive the war. Um, After four years, he went to college, and then in 1973, he got his PhD in theoretical physics. Now, this is quite a big deal, because at the time, there were only 79 African Americans out of 20,000 physicists with PhDs in the United States. So that's like less than 0.4%. So he was definitely in the minority, and uh, he definitely didn't want to risk his position by revealing that the only reason he was doing it was to build a time machine. (laughs) Yeah, so he kind of kept it quiet. The The only person he told was his wife, and he only told her after they were safely married. So yeah, he, he decided instead that he would like keep things hidden by working on more realistic and practical things like um, evaporating black holes. <laughs> it sounds, yeah, look, um, it is actually not totally off topic because to, to understand black holes, you need to use gravity, of course, and you need to use Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity. And general relativity tells us that gravity bends space and time. So space kind of bends like a rubber sheet around heavy objects like the Earth. You've probably seen this sort of analogy somewhere. And time, well, time is slower in a gravitational field. So time actually runs slower here on Earth than it does out in space. It's a pretty crazy notion. Trust me, it's true. Um, and all this means, all this manipulation of space and time means that maybe if you got it just right, you could actually turn the clock back. And so this is, this is a secret. This is why he was studying this stuff. Um, But, you know, it's still, even though it is kind of a legitimate consequence of relativity, it's not the kind of thing you want to broadcast. So, you know, you want to keep it quiet if you want to be taken seriously. Ask me how I know. (laughs) So this was fine until about the mid-90s when Ronald Mallet had his own brush with death. It turned out that he had inherited the same heart condition as his father. Time, his old nemesis, was catching up with him. And if he wanted to save his father... and build a time machine, he really had to get going. Uh, Now, it wasn't easy, of course. Um, General relativity. Look, it looks simple. I know you're thinking it looks simple. Uh, The equation for general relativity, you know, it's it's about that long, really. A bit longer if you put in the cosmological constant, but we won't get into that. Um, So it looks very simple. It's very elegant. It's very profound. But it's very, 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 very difficult to solve. Fortunately, though, Ronald Mallet, he had the skills, he had the motivation. And he figured out that if you built something, well, he calculated he built something called a ring laser, and this is basically just where you get a laser beam to go around in a ring by using uh, mirrors or a prism or something, and if the laser was extremely powerful, then what it could do is it could twist the space and time inside the ring, and that if you went on a little journey around the loop, around the centre of the ring, then you could end up at your starting point before you left. In the business, we call this a closed time like curve, but that's just a fancy way of saying a time machine. <laughs> so and also, because it's just made out of lasers and mirrors and stuff like that, you should be able to build this thing. And indeed, Ronald Mallet is trying to build his time machine. He has made some simple models of it. Um, out of, you know, They're about that big, and they've got like, lasers going around a little cylinder. And he's currently trying to raise money to build a more powerful version that hopefully will be powerful enough that he'll be able to measure this twisting of, of time and see whether the principle will actually work. Now, it's still might not be at that stage big enough to send a person back, but it's, he's thinking that it could be possible that you could, say, send subatomic particles like neutrons into the vortex and you would be able to send messages into the past, which is pretty cool. Being able to communicate with the past is not something to be written off. Of course, there are objections. There are people who think this won't work. Um, you may have heard of someone called Stephen Hawking, for instance. Anyone? Yep. Um, there was a movie about him last year, I believe. Won an Oscar. Um, Stephen Hawking, you know, he basically is one of these people who says that you can't travel back in time because it will cause paradoxes. So in Ronald Mallett's case, if he went back and saved his father, then that may not give him the incentive to become a physicist, and he may not build the time machine, not go back and save his father, etc., etc., etc. You see, that's a problem. This is an inherent issue with any kind of time travel. Um, You know, there are many ideas of getting around this. Usually, they involve just don't touch anything. Don't kill the butterfly. <laughs> that's not going to work for Ronald Mallett because that's the whole point of him going back because he wants to change things. So, you know, it's also possible that he's just, you know, these theories that say maybe he's got the sums wrong and the machine won't work. Uh, another problem, which even if uh, the time machine does work, uh, was, well, he talks about this in his autobiography, which is called The Time Traveller. I recommend looking that up if you want to read more about him. Um, but in this book, he claims that... I'm not sure whether this story is true, by the way. Um, he claims that when he presented his theory at a conference, uh, an eminent physicist stood up and said, do you realise that if your, if your theory is correct, you will only ever go, be able to go back as far as when the machine was first built. You'll never be able to go back and, and see your father. And Ronald Mallet says that he, at the point he turned around and looked at the blackboard and said, oh, you're Right. Now, I mean, it's pretty obvious, I would have thought, you know, with the nature of the time machine. And this guy was working on it for years, so I'm, I'm pretty sure he would have known that, but that's a story he tells. So that is a kind of a slight problem with the whole saving your father thing. Um, there is one other problem that, um, that really intrigues me, and this is, even if the, the time machine works, even if it's possible for him to go back uh, 60 years and see his father, and even if he is able to actually interfere with past events and not create paradoxes and that sort of thing, then would he actually be able to make any difference as well? Because the, um, the heart condition that he experiment, that he inherited, it turns out that his grandfather had had it as well. And so his father actually knew about it at the time and he was taking treatment, he was taking medication. It's just that little 10-year-old Ronald was never told about it. So, you know, it kind of raises the question, if he actually went and spoke to his father, would he be able to change anything, would he be able to make anything happen differently? And to me, this kind of... This is kind of like a deep philosophical question, because it makes me wonder about what influence any of us have on you know, the things that happen to ourselves and our loved ones. And you know, even if you have a time machine that you can't change the course of events, what can any of us do, really? Well, for Ronald Mallet, what he can do, what he hopes to do, is he hopes to actually go back and see his father one last time. So he's 71 now, uh, he's, about, he's nearly 40 years older than his father ever was, um, he is a world famous physicist, he is an awarded science educator, he is possibly the inventor of the world's first time machine. Um, I think he's more than easily fulfilled his father's dreams of an education and I think, um, I think his father would be very proud to see his son now. So yeah, that's Ronald Mallett, thank you. travelling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost
0: up ahead, your next stop. Lost in Science. I came into science through horticultural science, ended up doing genetic analysis of mycorrhizal fungi that live in the plant roots of Australian plants and travelled to Canada to study that for a while as well. So that makes a lot of sense, obviously, obviously. The difference between what's good and what's evil, who's a hero and who's a villain, that can be a bit blurry sometimes. Uh, Depending on where you're standing philosophically, looking at the individual. And also the division between science and technology can be a bit blurry as well. And certainly the person who I'm going to be talking about uh, is a good illustration of where do you draw the line on these kind of issues. And uh, here's a good illustration of him. I don't know if you can see that. I'll put him in this light. It all depends on the light you see someone in, right? that's, uh, that's Fritz Haber. I'll <laughs> hand those around. You can, you, can, you can put them on your kid's bedroom wall and scare them. If they're not scared and they go, oh, it just looks like Mike Myers, you can say, well, the really scary thing is he might make another Austin Powers movie. So Fritz Haber. That's, that's Fritz. You'll get to look at his, his face at some point. Now, Fritz was born in 1874 and in the 19th century there'd been some amazing scientific breakthroughs in the 19th century. Uh, the century he was born. So, germ theory. Huge breakthrough. People didn't worry that evil spirits were causing their illness anymore. They knew, oh, you get sick because you get a bug and we can actually maybe treat that. Um, and because they could figure out that this is something causing an illness, they realised, oh, we can actually treat those things. So they started developing treatments for things. So people started living, which was great, because people like that. Um, And also, you know, engineering made great strides in, you know, removing people's poo from where they lived. Stuff like that. You know, simple stuff like that that meant that cities were no longer disease-ridden cesspools, mostly. Depends where you lived. Um, but the upshot of all this was that there was a lot more people and they were living for longer. And when people live for longer, they eat more and they drink more. And they need food and they need drink. And all of our food and of all of our drinks uh, come from plants. might be a shock. This is, this is where being a gardener comes into it. All of our food and drink comes from plants. Doesn't matter if you only eat steak, there's plants involved somewhere along the line. If you're a vegan, well, there's lots of plants involved somewhere along the line. If all you do is drink beer, hate to break it to you, plants are involved. So the thing about plants is they need uh, nitrogen. Heavily, heavily reliant on nitrogen. No nitrogen, the plants die. Okay. So we've got to grow all these plants, we've got to grow all this food to feed all these people who are living for longer. And so we need a whole lot more nitrogen. So where do we get nitrogen from? That's a good question. So in the late 19th century, all the European superpowers, we're talking, you know, Germany, France, Spain. Spain did a bit more before the 19th century, but they suddenly realised they were running out of stuff. They'd had all these people for so long and they just kept recycling and recycling. But then they realised that a lot of their nutrients, they were just growing them on the farm, growing food, growing plants, feeding people, making bread, making beer, feeding it to people and then piercing it out into the rivers and out into the ocean, which meant all that beautiful nitrogen was just washing out to sea. So they went, you know what? We'll go to less developed countries and steal all their nitrogen. This is a great idea. So they went around and colonised as much of the world as they could possibly manage in a very short amount of time until pretty much there's nowhere in the world that wasn't colonised by somebody. Now, they were looking for nitrogen and nitrogen occurs naturally in droppings, animal droppings, human droppings, but birds and bats have particularly potent poo. So one of the things people went out in search of was big piles of shit. And they found them. There's, there's caves full of millennia worth of bat shit. And that was valuable stuff. Uh, now, Germany sent ships all the way around the world to a beautiful little island called Nauru. You might have heard of this place, I don't know. It was a big pile of shit. It always was. Now it's a smaller pile of shit. There's nothing left on it because all the shit got dug out and now we send people there to live on a pile of shit, basically. But that's not entirely the Germans' fault. The Germans sent the ships there in the first place. But uh, as soon as World War I broke out, the British said, hey, you guys in Australia, can you go and make sure the Germans can't get any shit from Nauru? It's ours now. So we went, okay. So... That's why we have this amazing relationship. (sighs) Okay, enough of that. People figured, chemists figured, there's got to be a better way of getting nitrogen. The atmosphere itself is 80% nitrogen. How do we get that nitrogen out of the atmosphere and grow plants with it? There are some plants that can do that by themselves. They're called the bean family. They grab nitrogen out of the air puts it into their roots, and they get their own nitrogen. Most plants can't do that. They're hopeless. But <laughs> the, the 80% of the atmosphere that's nitrogen, we don't need it. We don't breathe nitrogen. We can't do anything with it. We breathe it in. We breathe it out. Nothing happens. Um, although if you go deep-sea diving, you get too much nitrogen. You get bubbles in your blood, and your brain explodes and stuff. But that's beside the point. So Fritz Haber was a chemist. And he'd been working on all sorts of stuff. He'd been figuring out different ways of making alcohol and putting things under pressure and combining different stuff, like people did in the late you know, 19th century, early 20th century. They just put a whole bunch of shit together and see what happened. And, you know, oh, nothing happened that time, so let's heat it up and see what happens. Or let's put it under pressure and see what happens. Or let's you know freeze it and see what happens. So he was doing all this stuff, and he figured out that he could get... Ammonium, which is a form of nitrogen from the air, if you put it under enough pressure, using catalysts like, you know, uranium stuff like that, that was just lying around his lab. <laughs> so he he figured out this process, and then he gave it to a guy called uh, uh, Carl Bosch, who worked for a company called BASF, who were formed in the middle of the nineteenth century, making you know stuff. They weren't making cassette tapes or anything in those days because they hadn't invented that yet, but they were doing, like, weird, science-y chemistry stuff. So this guy, Carl Bosch at BASF, went, oh, wow, great process. Good one, Fritz. Uh, I'll I'll make a machine that can do that all the time. And so he did. And so he industrialised this process. And they both got Nobel Prizes for their work. Uh, Fritz Haber got it for the chemistry side of it, and uh, well, Carl Bosch got a chemistry Nobel Prize as well, but he was more of an engineer. But So they both got honoured for their work, and this was called the Haber-Bosch process. It was getting nitrogen out of the air, turning into ammonium, which you could then feed your plants with. Interestingly, when World War I broke out, the Allies, mostly the British to begin with, used to have the nickname for the German soldiers of Fritz or the Bosch. Now, this had actually nothing to do with Fritz Haber or um, Carl Bosch, but um, the other thing that nitrogen's really, really useful for is making explosives. So if you ever buy a large amount of nitrogen fertiliser and diesel and you don't own a farm... Someone's going to come knocking on your door. Just, I'll be clear, that's pretty obvious. So, large amounts of explosive going into World War I. Great. Thanks, Fritz Haber. You're awesome. We can make all these explosives and win the war. But Fritz wasn't content to just rest on his laurels for making an amazing process to make explosives out of air, basically. Um, He enlisted in the German army. He went, I want to get in there, I want to be right in there battling these evil people from the other side of the channel. He was promoted to captain really quickly and as a chemist, he thought, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to use up all our explosives, we could just kill people with gas, wouldn't that be awesome? And they went, good idea Fritz. You're in charge of our Chemical Weapons Division. So so Fritz Haber, despite knowing that this was expressly forbidden by the Hamburg Convention, which probably no one's really ever heard of, that predates the Geneva Convention by about 50 years, um, he said, OK, we can use chlorine gas. And he actually was in charge of launching the first chlorine gas attack in World War I at Ypres in France. Not everyone... <clears throat> not everyone was impressed with this idea, including his wife, who broke into his room, stole his service revolver and shot herself in the garden. But after that, he got a new wife. It's OK. <laughs> the, the, use of, the use of chemical warfare was absolutely banned. It didn't actually work that well, for one thing, because if you launch a chemical attack at your enemy and the wind's blowing the wrong way, it blows all back on you. So it's it's not really that great an idea. It was a pretty dumb idea, really. Um, But he did did actually intend to use his chemical know-how for the good of Germany and he actually was quoted as saying, in a rough translation, he said, in peacetime a scientist works for science, in wartime he works for his country. Okay, fair enough. But he ended up, and Haber's not actually a really obviously Jewish name, but it is a Jewish name. So at some point after the First World War finished, um, some some gentlemen—we can call them gentlemen—gentlemen, gentlemen? that's probably better—they were well dressed. Let's put it that way: very nice uniforms. Came knocking on his door and said, "You and everyone in your lab has to get out of this building." because we're seizing it. So he left the country. He went to Britain, he ended up in Switzerland, but he kept working as a chemist, as a scientist. He was, he was quite a good scientist. Now, whatever his intent was, he didn't like, he didn't like the people who had come to power in Germany, so he decided to take his work away from them, which is probably a good thing because He continues to work in chemistry and he developed things, some of which are really not very nice. He developed Zyklon B gas. If you don't know what that is, you can look that up later. I'm not going to explain it right now. But also a number of really useful things, like the glass-tipped pH metres, which probably exist in every lab. and You can get them to stick in your pocket these days, but they're still used up to this day. He was such a good uh, chemical engineer and physicist, of course he studied physics as well, because back in those days, it was all just science. So he studied, studied physics, studied chemistry, did a bit of engineering, did bit of this, did that. So he did some really amazing things. He actually figured out... One of his teachers was the, probably the second most famous scientist called Bunsen, uh, not Bunsen Honeydew. It was Robert Bunsen who invented the Bunsen burner. That was one of his teachers. Haber actually figured out why does it go blue when you move the little thing around. So he figured out what the chemical reaction was going on there and figured out a way of uh, judging the temperature of flames by the amount of light they were emitting. He was pretty polymathic, I guess. But look, he died in Switzerland in 1934, before his work was used in the Second World War in some ways, which might have changed allegiance, but I think he'd given up on Germany by that point. He lived in Switzerland. He was neutral. Um, And obviously he did intend for his work to be used for ill intent at times. Um, And, you know, obviously going, hey, we can use this process to make explosive. that's awesome, is not really that nice um, when you think about it. But the obvious thing that he did achieve is that in... ..at the turn of the 20th century, 1900, there was about... 1.2 billion people in the world and increasing because of engineering and sanitation and medicine and all that stuff and it has increased and now we have 7 point something billion people in the world so to feed all of those 7 billion people in the world they produce 100 million tonnes of nitrogen industrially in the world and it's been estimated that in every human body, about 40% of the nitrogen that's in every human body, is traceable to the Haber-Bosch process. So effectively, a large part of every one of us is owing our actual living, breathing existence to Fritz Haber, regardless of whether you think he's a science hero or if you think he's an evil science villain. Thank you very much. that's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science thanks for tuning in and joining us Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the community radio network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation if you want to talk to us talk back to us uh, you can get in touch we have a gmail account lostinsight at gmail Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, and if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost Lost in Science. Science!